ask you to turn to First Peter, and I didn't want to read the whole book, but uh, I do want to touch base on a little bit of First Peter outside of the verses we're reading in chapter four, and um, and I did ask counsel if I uh, could say a little as to uh, what it is that um, I'm getting into as I uh, resign from Woodinook and uh, join what Classes Alberta North has endorsed as uh, Neighborhood Life, which is going to be applicable to this, uh, this afternoon's message. And so as we, uh, as we enter into that, um, I do want to tie that in a little. <clears throat> but before we do, let's pray together. Uh, Lord God in heaven, we thank you for who you were on this earth as you were dependent and walked and uh, shared and healed and fed. And uh, you dealt with those on the margins and as you uh, journeyed through the land, as, uh, as we know now as the Holy Land, we uh, see how you were uh, place um, to place without having uh, the, the knowledge of, of, of where you were going to be next and where you were going to stay or as you put it, I that you had no place to, to uh, lay your head. You had no, no home. Um, but your brothers and sisters, uh, who both believed in uh, Heavenly Father above, journeyed with you and learned from your journeys to pass on the message that we now have laid out in the Scriptures for us today. So we're eternally grateful for the encouragement and for the hope that you have for us in, uh, in your world that uh, has much brokenness. Uh, so we thank you, and we uh, give ourselves to you in your name. Amen. I want to begin by saying that uh, although I am engaged in neighborhood life, that the concept of Working in your neighborhood is not the only place in which to do ministry. There is a great deal of people, and my friends remind me of this, that uh, there is the, the parents of the sporting organization through uh, a, a club sport or uh, different groups and organizations that meet around that um, are definitely venues in which a person can do ministry and effectively reach with the gospel. And that is not uh, anything that I had in, in, in planned to, to open up, but I, I am asked a lot about that. But for my role, I am simply looking to work in the neighborhoods because of the leverage you have, because you share properties, because it is a place in which you live and have your being, or you're supposed to live and have your being. That's where you spent all this money to develop what you call home. And the neighbors that you have, I understand in scriptures, are not always to be literally interpreted, as we sang in the song that Henry picked, can be both close and far away. But to leave where we live, to search out the people in which we do ministry at the expense of those around us, doesn't seem to make sense, and that grabbed my attention in which I experimented for the last three years. Now, there is a great deal of scripture that talks about neighboring and loving your neighbors from the Old Testament into the New. And as we read these passages, we understand that the word neighborhood doesn't always come up. But under the circumstances, like in Peter's case, a deep reading of the scriptures will tell us that there's a few things that 
are curiously similar to the concept of neighborhoods in that Peter would have them do the work of the Lord in the place that they live with those around them. And so having just established that, I do want to point to the beginning of Peter's letter, 1 Peter, if you look at chapter 1, where he says three things that I just want to unpack as we begin. The words elect, strangers, and scattered. And these are words that are quite interesting due to the fact that Peter is writing a letter to his church. I don't know if Pastor Mike ever has uh, appealed to you as uh, Bethel strangers. It just seems to be an odd word to use, especially then to say that they had been scattered, although as we read on, we understand why. And then, of course, the word elect. The word elect simply talks about the fact that these are people who are chosen for being a light to the nation. Chosen because the truth has been revealed to them. Strangers, because they are the people who feel that way, knowing that the hope that they have been given in Christ Jesus is the hope for the nations and is the light in the dark world. And strangers is the term that Peter uses because he is all too familiar with how he had been surrounded by people too during his discipleship training, in which he was surrounded by people who, who did not know or believe in Christ. And not sharing those fundamental perspectives or that basic worldview that Jesus Christ reigns makes Peter feel like a stranger, makes anybody feel like a stranger. And therefore, Peter not only says, you're chosen for this role to be a light to the people in your life, but you are strangers knowing perhaps how you will be seen or how you feel. And then the concept of being scattered. <clears throat> Simply put, they are not a cohesive group as a church, but people who are placed amongst these strangers in order for them to share the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> After having established that, Peter goes on to talk about holiness and how in chapter 2, and that is a familiar passage, I believe, to many of us as you read, that we are being built into this living house and that there are people that will see Jesus Christ as a stumbling block in opposed to the one who gives us hope. Interesting because as he continues to to write his letter to the church, he does lay out the word stranger numerous times. He does refer to them as being the ones who have been chosen by God to be the ones relaying the message of the good news. And simply put, Peter's strong advice for them is all wrapped up in a great understanding that we are rooted in Christ Jesus, which I'll get to in a little bit. I do want to then continue to read in chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. <clears throat> As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but living according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray, and above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ's so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I do believe that it is important to acknowledge today's, um, today's um, how would you say it, uh, conditions, circumstances, in which, as we read in the back of the banner, did you get that today in your mailboxes? I think so. And if you flip the back page, you will see whole missions as a big half page that says North America is a mission field. Um, I've seen that more often, whereas we do not always see whole missions statement as being true. We still see the mission fields as being elsewhere other than our own backyard. But for me, I've come to realize that it is true that uh, there is probably 80%, if not a little less or more, I haven't done a formal study, that do not darken the doors of the church. Even though they may have grown up with the faith or perhaps they're nominal Catholics or perhaps they have no idea of the scriptures at all, or perhaps they just uh, um, are just taking it easy and do not want to belong and have their private sense of worship. And uh, that's always up for debate, of course, as to whether that's legit or not. But regardless, 80% do not darken the doors of the church. And as healthy of a church as we see in central Alberta, anyways, the Christian Reformed ones that I know of, like Bethel and Woody Nook, we see that if we were to wait for all those people to show up at whichever church they wanted to in this area, that it would be a long time waiting 
before we could effectively do ministry. And so I engaged in the idea that classes proposed is a healthy one, and that is from home missions, and that we would work within our neighborhoods. And then I see Peter's text as he has legitimately instructed the people of his church to do something quite similar, in which they would be released to be the elect strangers that are scattered. And this is where we find many of the people, perhaps of the 80% that wouldn't darken the door of the church, have in a sense be in the margins. And that's why I titled this evening's message, Hope in the Margins. For in the last three years, and that's what Woody Nook allowed me to experiment with for 30% of my job description, if you want to know the technicalities of it, is to see how effective this could be in the neighborhood that I live in which is made up of 45 homes, and in there it is true that there is only four Christian families that live out of the 45 households that I went around and counted. And there are a few that are, like I said, the nominal Catholics and perhaps the ones that are are brought up in the faith and know about it, but I've just let it go. But as of today, there is four households out of the 45 that actually leave and participate in the family of God as the institutional church as we know it. <clears throat> so I began to bring people together and serve meals and do some of the things that we do as a church, but effectively doing it in the neighborhood, and began to uncover some of the things that have taken place in people's lives. I hear a little bit of confession, but that's a pretty hard thing to come by, but a great deal of brokenness. That's the best way to put it that no one knows how to deal with or what to do. And to effectively find myself as a person who knows the hope of the nations after reading a letter like First Peter, I am left to wonder, how can I apply myself to the 45 homes that surround me? Now, really, I have 150 homes because I live out by Wilson's Beach, you know, by Doof's Greenhouses, and actually that whole loop is 150. Now, 30% of those are seasonal, but regardless of the stats, we still have a great deal of people who do not darken the door of the church and do not have an effective way of understanding the gospel, either by listening, hearing the good news, or by seeing it modeled. In fact, I've found that there's a few people who have, in different creative ways, which is, uh, I chuckle because Um, they don't use languages that's appropriate, tell me that they have not really seen, and I put it in my words as a summary, a light in the darkness. They don't see hope. They instead display mannerisms and conversations that are so distant that I believe are summed up in the ways in which Peter listed at the beginning of chapter 4. But I want to get on to the hope that we have to bring them as a way of looking at the neighborhoods. 150 homes were too much, so I pared it down to 45. And sometimes I think there are people that perhaps are finding that even daunting. So start with two, one on the left and one on the right. Loving your neighbors is a concept, of course, that is clear throughout Scripture's And it's something that I know is, again, not necessarily just about the literal neighbors, but also the distant ones. I know that. But for sure, it is not about the distant ones at the expense of the ones who live around us. It's perhaps convenient for me, and I feel that in my heart, 
to say that there are neighbors that I would love to love that are over there so that I do not have the daunting task of having to deal with the neighbors who are right here around me in those 45 homes on a regular basis. But I choose to get involved and have for the three years as a way to find out if I should journey in this direction. And of course, the answer is yes. But as I do this, I attract stories of people who have deliberately done the same and have worked in their neighborhoods. And I just want to share some recent ones that begin to get at the message of the hope that we have and that we find in the margins. The people who are marginalized are people that are left out. Throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, from the days of God's people, namely the Israelites, that were asked to cherish those who didn't have family, like the widow or, 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 the, or the, the ones without parents, the orphan. Uh, he also wanted uh, his people, the Israelites, to, of course, take care of the disenfranchised and the poor. And they didn't. They didn't heed to the message. The people that were around them were, were exploited or were ignored. Or there was all kinds of stories that led God to believe that they weren't getting the message of being a light to the other nations in order for them to have hope, but instead reflected on their own ways and their own life. It became selfish, the same selfishness that got Adam and Eve into trouble in the days of Garden of Eden. And this story continues on as we read Jesus coming into the world, sent, just as the Holy Spirit comes into the world, that was sent in order for us to understand this message that God looks to relay, to be a light to the world and a hope to the nations. And amongst those marginal people, that is our role. The ones who are left out, cut off, or just don't know, haven't had any idea of the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> so fa- this past Friday, I'm at the radio station. I hang out there a little bit. <clears throat> and of course, there's a guy there that continually talks to me. many of them do, but this one in particular would like to talk to me because uh, he's interested in the fact that I'm resigning at Woody Nook to become this neighborhood life guy, as he puts it. And so he asks me some questions about what he's doing, but before he does that, he's very sure that I know he is not a Christian. I'm not a Christian, Rick. (laughs) So he begins every conversation that I think we had for probably the last several months, once per month. I'm not a Christian, Rick, but I want you to know uh, that I like what you're doing. (laughs) Now, I dug a little deeper, and I found out he was raised uh, Baptist. And uh, and anyways, um, I guess the day they... His parents stole his Iron Maiden t-shirt was the day he gave up on the Lord. Anyways, that's his story. But uh, he has a a great interest in all of this to the point where he begins to talk about his neighbors. And I bring this story up because it's wonderfully useful for us in light of what Peter is writing in that we would live sacrificially. Now I use that term instead of the word suffering because suffering is is something we try to avoid. Suffering is a term, even though Peter has listed it numerous times in chapter 4, is, is, is very irrelevant to many of us because of the lives we live in our culture. 
And why I use sacrificial living is because that's the call of God on our lives in order to give people an understanding of what Christ did for us, that we would pass that on, so that we would then understand that through the sacrificial living, we see people find hope. Now, sacrificial living indirectly leads to suffering, as Peter would have it in chapter 4. Now, the guy, and I'll call him Ron at the radio station, begins to tell me, wow, Rick, I got these two neighbors. And the one guy on, on my left, he says, is an old, old man. And the guy on my right is, is just a young buck. And he says, I've lived there for years. And you know when that snow dropped last Sunday? And, and, and everybody was out shoveling. He says, I went out and, and shoveled the old man's yard along with mine. And then he stopped and he says, a couple of years ago, I used to shovel the young guys too. And... Uh, And as I did this, I noticed that any time that he would beat me out to shovel the walk, he only went up to the property line, and he would stop. Regardless of how many times that I would shovel, or the older guy would shovel his walk. So I don't shovel his walk anymore. Well... I was just listening to the story, but was delightfully impressed with how he had summed up some of the feelings that I have when it comes to sacrificial living. Now, I use such a little petty example. Can I say that? Maybe it's a big example for some of us. I don't know. But in a sense, the sacrificial living part that he exposed to me for the older man was absolutely tied to conditions when it came to the younger guy. And so my question this afternoon that I ask myself and all of us, knowing that we live in the spirit that Peter is telling us to live sacrificially, what makes a person stop? What makes a person quit living sacrificially? Well, and I think we totally track with this guy, Ron, as he will continually serve his older neighbor who relentlessly and faithfully shovels his walk. But the young guy is a question that we beg to have answered, albeit we know what he's thinking. Ron's thinking, he isn't shoveling mine, I'm not shoveling his. What makes that person stop living sacrificially? It's certainly something we do not find in the Scriptures. Better yet, let's ask the question, what makes a person start? What makes a person start living sacrificially? Because it involves a A sacrifice, obviously. But as we go down this road, it it involves suffering. And what Peter is saying is if there is anything 
that I need to let my congregation know as they are elected, as they are strangers, and as they are scattered, is that they need to be keenly aware and never forget what fuel they run off. And that is, of course, the story of Christ Jesus. So when Ron tells me the story about how he, and he didn't put it that way, quit living sacrificially in my small little example of shoveling snow, he begins to tell me, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to live that way, to do good for neighbors, in which I wanted to argue, yes, you do, because you quit. And I think that those who understand the fuel in their tank is that of Christ Jesus, who never quit for us, may get us further ahead, may have a shovel a lot longer, perhaps to the end of our lives. But the fuel that we receive from being rooted in Christ Jesus that he went through every agonizing aspect as he journeyed to the cross for our sake is enough to dwell on and meditate on day and night, as the psalmist says, in order that the fuel in our tank is sustainable in that we do not stop living sacrificially. And we're not talking about shovel and snow. We're talking about the attitude of the heart. We're talking about what's so dear in our 450-year catechism that talks about the unconditional love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that takes our hardened hearts and makes it into flesh because we know that it took a long time to change us. So why would I stop trying through my actions, words, to change those who live around me. Well, easier said than done. I mean, I had a, a brother I, I quit praying for. I, I have people that I just stop. It's, it's, it's natural. But in theology, we understand how this continues to take us into the world of, of identifying who we are in Christ Jesus and to know and identify who we are as elect and to identify and know who we are as strangers, and to identify and know who we are as scattered, to bring the hope to those in the margins. <clears throat> Great story, and it be in Remembrance Day, and, and if you're at the service tomorrow, you'll, you'll hear it again. A story that really told and taught me a lot about our identity in Christ Jesus as we move forward as people who are missionaries into into others' lives around us. And the story comes from Viktor Frankl, and if you've read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, you might have heard this story. And this being Remembrance Day is very fitting because Viktor Frankl, was a, uh, he served in Auschwitz. And, and this is a story that he tells as a POW, that in his cell, after uh, being there for a long time, um, a man stands stripped of his identity, stark naked, cleaned up even from his name, where he has no contact with other humans. And he's left in the coldness and the darkness and the dampness, only to be fed a little bit of food. And if they want to get his attention, they won't even use his name. They will call him a number. Victor Frankel tells this story because it is depriving a person from 
any kind of systems or any sense of community uh, that God had suggested would be excellent for our well-being as the people who are called his own. And so as a person who is stripped of his identity in the cold cell, all alone, how is he to survive? And Frankel says, it is amazing because in the darkness, simply this man holds up invisible bread and invisible wine and daily has communion with his Lord and testifies to that being the reason he found strength and perseverance to move forward. And to have the powerful identity of not only knowing we are rooted in Christ Jesus to help us move into sacrificial living beyond anybody's realm of understanding is exactly what Peter is getting at. And you can tell because he writes it throughout his letter. In chapter 4, he starts with that famous word, therefore. So you go back and you read exactly what it is that he's saying all this. What he's saying, what he's basing this all on. And it is that of Christ Jesus. Who in verse 18, he writes of chapter 3. Died for our sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached in the spirits in prison. This is the good news of the gospel, the fuel in our tank, the reason that we can move forward as people that are called to live sacrificially. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, give yourselves as living sacrifices. This is a way in which we see ourselves heading down a road of suffering. Suffering for the goodness of Christ. Suffering because we believe and understand the hope that is beyond what we know of in this world. Suffering that understands a picture that so many people in this world, more so in North America, and more so, could be 80% of your neighborhood has not seen or heard or tasted. And that's because we're not prone to suffer. I think I live in the same world you do where we try to avoid suffering at all costs. Therefore, we tell ourselves not to shovel any further. And in the uh, text that we read, we see Peter writing, therefore, not only because of Christ Jesus, but he throws in this little story of Noah. While the ark was being built, eight in all were saved through the water. That symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. This is not the removal from the, of the dirt of the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels' authorities and powers in submission to him. He states that because he knows his identity in Christ is also one that tells him 
that today Jesus not only died but resurrected and he reigns. And when we believe and live in the truth of the authority of Jesus Christ reigning in this world, we live different than anyone else. We live with an attitude of the heart that's sacrificial, doesn't mind to suffer. This is what it means for the believer to be carried to the waters of judgment like Noah was, all eight of them, and then deposited in this new world. A world where we are called strangers. Now this means, as with Noah, and in our case, that we do not live the rest of our earthly life for human evil desires, but now rather for the will of God. You can see Noah's mind as he lays there on a new earth, understanding what he's gone through, and then hearing words back then as we hear them today from Peter's letter to commit ourselves to loving and serving one another, faithfully administrating God's grace. Verse 7 through 11. So, in conclusion, we shouldn't be surprised that such a lifestyle involves sacrificial living or suffering. In fact, we should expect to participate and rejoice in Christ's suffering. There is no shame to suffer as Christians. When we do, we are simply then to commit ourselves and our cause to God and keep on doing good. Amen. Let me pray with you.